0: Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles uh, this evening to Titus chapter 2. Titus chapter 2, as we're continuing in our study through the book of Titus, we come uh, this evening to Titus chapter 2, verse 11. And my goal is to try to cover uh, verses 11 through 14 and perhaps touch on verse uh, 15 as well. And if you want to give a title to the message tonight, it would be the gospel of grace we adorn. The gospel of grace that we as believers are called to adorn. That's what we're going to be looking at tonight as we focus on verses 11 through 14. In his book entitled Ordinary, Michael Horton begins with these words, and these are seriously the very first words of the first chapter of his book entitled, Ordinary. I quote, radical, epic, revolutionary, transformative, impactful, life-changing, ultimate, extreme, awesome, emergent, alternative, innovative, on the edge, the next big thing, explosive breakthrough. He then says, you can probably add to the list of modifiers that have become a part of the ordinary conversations in society and in today's church. Most of us have heard expressions like these so often that they have become background noise. And as a result, he goes on to say this, The word ordinary has to be one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary today. After all, who wants a bumper sticker that announces to the neighborhood, my child is an ordinary student at Bubbling Brook Elementary? Who wants to be that ordinary person who lives in an ordinary town, is a member of an ordinary church, and has ordinary friends and works an ordinary job. I mean, our life has to count. We have to leave a mark, have a legacy, and make a difference. And all of this has to be something that can be managed, measured, and maintained. After all, we have to live up to our Facebook profile, unquote. And in the process of pursuing this kind of epic life, Michael Horton says, and I quote, it is all too easy to turn other people in our lives into a supporting cast for our life movie with us as the hero of the story. This tendency that Horton speaks about is in me, it is in all of us, and given that tendency, imagine that you are an older man or an older woman or a younger woman or a younger man and you're wanting to make a radical difference for Christ in this world and you want to do some radical thing that is going to adorn the gospel before the eyes of a watching world and you're excited that Paul is about to tell you how to do that in Titus chapter 2. And then imagine hearing these words from Paul to Titus beginning in verse 2 of Titus 2. And if you have your bibles read along as i read. Verse 2, older men are to be temperate, dignified, sensible, sound in faith, in love, in perseverance. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good, so that they may encourage the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, So that the word of God will not be dishonored. Likewise, urge the young men to be sensible. In all things, show yourself to be an example of good deeds, with purity and doctrine, dignified, sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, so that the opponent will be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about us. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Commentators point out that this final so-that statement of Paul in verse 10 applies not only to the bond slaves... But it expresses the motive and the outcome of all the behaviors that he has been giving in these preceding verses. Every Christian of every demographic, living the way that Paul identifies in this chapter, will adorn the doctrine of God, or the gospel in every respect. But one of the things you notice right away when reading Titus chapter two, verse two through 10, is how mundane these instructions are. Perhaps you would expect Paul to give you something more radical and world altering to do. And you're disappointed as a woman that Paul simply tells you as a woman to do things like submit to your husband and love your children, or that God tells you as a young man to be an example of good deeds and to be above reproach. But if you're disappointed in these instructions because you're wanting something more epic to do, it is only because you fail to realize how epic and powerful these seemingly mundane behaviors really are. You're also probably failing to appreciate the role that these behaviors are supposed to play in relation to the gospel. When you read this whole chapter, including verses 11 through 14, that we'll look at tonight, what you learn, guys, is that Jesus Christ has already done the extraordinary thing. He is the hero of history and the hero of our life story, and he has already done the powerful and the world altering thing. And our job, according to verse 10, is not to photobomb Jesus and try to become the main attraction. Our task is simply to declare what he has done and to adorn the gospel message about him so that others will be drawn to look not at us, but at him. So if you learn anything from Titus 2, learn this. We, I mean you and I, we are not the gospel. Our behaviors are not the gospel. At most, our godly behaviors are merely adornment for the gospel, adornment designed to draw people's eyes to the real good news of what God has done for the world through Christ. In giving us this role of adorning the gospel in this chapter, Paul, in one sense, is putting us in our place. He's humbling us, but he's also taking a huge amount of pressure off of us. We don't have to be the hero, guys. Christ is already the hero. And all we have to do is adorn the message about him and what he has done. And Paul identifies in chapter 2, verses 2 through 10 the kind of behaviors that adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ in this way. And then notice the grammatical connection of verses 11 through 14 to what precedes. Paul has given us instructions regarding how to live in verses 2 through 10, culminating in the goal of adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior, in every respect. And then he says at the beginning of verse 11, four. And what follows that four in verse 11 is an unfolding of the doctrine of God, our Savior. It's the fountain from which our behaviors flow. This is the gospel that we are to adorn. And here it is in all of its beauty. Let me read to you verses 11 through 14. 14. Paul says, "'For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus.'" who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you, Paul says to Titus and to all of us. But the time we have tonight, I want us to look at four truths related to the gospel of grace that we are called to adorn. Four truths related to this gospel of grace that we are called to adorn. And the first truth is this, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. Observe what Paul says in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. What we deserve for our sins against a holy God is judgment. But when Christ came into the world, the grace of God appeared. The word grace speaks of God's unmerited favor, the kindness that God shows to people who otherwise deserve his wrath, this grace of God, Paul says, has appeared. And when he makes this announcement, he's speaking of everything entailed in Christ's first advent, from the birth of Christ all the way to his ascension, which includes the life that Jesus lived, the Truths that he taught and the deeds that he performed and the death that he died, his resurrection from the dead and his post resurrection appearances, all the way up to his ascension. Paul lumps all of these things together and says, The grace of God has appeared. The Greek word translated appeared is the word we get our English word epiphany from. And Paul is saying that the appearing of Christ at his first coming represents the greatest epiphany of God's grace that the world has ever known. And when this grace appeared, Paul says, it appeared bringing salvation to all men. There are people nowadays who say that we don't need help from above, that we don't need salvation. From above. This kind of thinking is very common. Chris Cuomo of CNN was recently talking about what we all can do to make the United States a better country. And he said these words, and I quote, if you believe in one another, and if you do the right thing for yourself and your community, things will get better in this country. You don't need help from above. It's within us, unquote. Guys, it's this very arrogance that we need salvation from. The Bible teaches us that we need major help from above. We need salvation from the guilt of our sins. We need salvation from the eternal judgment of God that we deserve for our sins, And we need deliverance from the power of sinful lusts that wage war against our soul. And if the grace of God does not in human history appear in the person of Jesus Christ in the way that it did, then there is no salvation for us from these things. But as Paul tells us here in this passage, the grace of God has appeared Bringing salvation to all men, which means that all men need it. None of us could save ourselves. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, the Bible says. All have turned aside, Paul says in the book of Romans. And we were totally helpless to remedy our lost condition. And this was true for every one of us. And every human being that has ever lived, which is why it is good news for us that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, to all, not just to some who were more deserving, but all. Salvation clearly is not something that any of us could accomplish on our own. It is something that must be brought down to us from above. And when Paul tells us here that the grace of God brings salvation to all men or to all people, he means a couple of things. First of all, he's saying that the legitimate offer of salvation comes to the door of every person's life as a result of the work of Christ in his first coming. Because of what Christ has accomplished at the cross, a genuine offer of salvation is brought to the threshold of every person's life and it's there for the taking because of what Christ has done for each person to either accept or refuse. And for some of you, salvation is at the doorstep of your life right now, tonight, for you to accept or refuse. You can accept it and be saved forever, or you can reject it. And I must warn you that if you live your life rejecting this salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ, you will one day find yourself under the eternal wrath of Almighty God, and you will bemoan the fact that there was once a time earlier in your life when salvation had come to your door and you never answered the door. It was there for the taking, but in your pride, you refused it. And I plead with you, please don't let that be you. Don't let this moment pass you by. Believe in Christ and let God usher salvation into your life through Jesus Christ. But in saying here that the grace of God brings salvation to all men, Paul is not just saying that the offer of salvation comes to all men. He's saying also that the grace of God that has appeared in the person and the work of Christ in his first coming is actually and truly saving all kinds of people from every tribe and tongue and nation, the young and the old, the rich and the poor, male and female, the free and the slave, Jew and Gentile. God is saving through his grace people from all of these categories, all kinds of people. Paul has just told slaves in the preceding verses to submit to their masters in order to adorn the gospel. And then he immediately comes into verse 11 and declares that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. Why does he do that? Paul wants the Christian slave to realize that salvation may come to his master and to his master's household. The slave should not write off his master as someone whom God would never save. The slave should realize that it might actually be through his ministry as a slave, his ministry to his master, that God might draw his master to a saving knowledge of Christ. And you should not write off anyone in your life either, but seek to adorn the gospel in your relationship with every person. After all, the very man who is writing these words in our text was once known as Saul of Tarsus, who was enemy number one of the church. No one thought that God would or could save him. In fact, after Paul was saved, none of the Christians even wanted to associate with him because they couldn't believe that he was really a Christian. But Christ had wonderfully saved him because Christ is in the business of bringing salvation to the most surprising of people. And all of us here at Cornerstone, we're all just a bunch of surprising people who Christ has saved. Amen. The grace of God has appeared, Paul says, bringing salvation to all men. But the grace of God does more than simply bring us salvation There's yet another truth that Paul gives us related to this gospel of grace that we are called to adorn. Here's the second truth. The grace of God teaches us how to live properly in this present age. The grace of God teaches us how to live properly in this present age. Observe what the saving grace of God does in our lives Paul says in verse 12 that it has appeared, and then look at verse 12 instructing us. It brings us salvation, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. The word that is translated instructing here is actually the Greek word for child turned into a verb. It literally speaks of child training. And because child training often involves discipline, we actually see this very word translated discipline in other places of the New Testament, such as in Hebrews 12. This Greek word speaks of anything that a parent does in order to train their child in right behavior, including the use of chastisement to achieve that end. So this word, interestingly, it is not a comfortable word. It involves rigorous training and coaching. And it involves the introduction of pain and upheaval into the life of the student with instructive intent. And Paul is saying that the grace of God, which has appeared to us in the person of Christ, does all of these things. It teaches us and convicts us and instructs us. This grace lifts us up and rallies us, and it challenges us, all with the intention of coaching us into the kind of lifestyle that Paul describes here in verse 12. On the negative side, Paul says that the grace of God trains us to deny two things, ungodliness and worldly desires. This word that is translated deny, is a strong word. It's the word used to speak of denying the faith in First Timothy 5, 8. It's the word used to speak of Peter denying Christ on the night of Christ's arrest when Peter swore an oath and denied that he even knew Jesus. This word speaks of a blunt denial, a denial without courtesy and without ambiguity and without any waffling And Paul tells us that the grace of God teaches us to bluntly deny ungodliness and worldly desires. In other words, to deny sinful behavior that dishonors God and sinful lusts that come from within ourselves, but which are nurtured and fed by this world system. The grace of God that has appeared to us in Christ at His first coming, teaches us decisively to deny or say no to such things. Notice by the way that the text here does not say that the grace of God removes our sinful desires. This removal will come in a future day in glory, but not at present. But God's grace does teach us to stand up to these sinful desires that come from within and help us to say no to them. When sinful desires bubble up from deep within us, we respond by saying, I will not let these sinful desires define me nor dictate my behavior. I will say no to them. And guys, it's the grace of God that teaches us to respond this way to sin. There are people nowadays whose view of grace is such that it makes them have a more casual view of sin. They are so into grace that they feel freer to continue in sin, knowing that God's justifying grace will continue to abound toward them but we would have to say that such people do not understand the true grace of God because according to this passage it is the grace of God manifested through the person and work of Christ that teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts speaking of worldly Our world today teaches people that the sinful desires within them are actually good. Our world tells them that they should embrace their inner desires and give in to them and let those desires be what defines them. The world even tells us that saying no to our inner desires is to live a lie. The world tells us that giving in to our desires is actually the only way to be true to ourselves and to live authentically. But the grace of God teaches us that there are actually desires within each one of us that will destroy us if we let them reign over us. And the grace of God teaches us that we must deny these desires. And in denying them, the grace of God is not teaching us to deny they exist, But the grace of God teaches us to deny them fulfillment and to disassociate ourselves from them and refuse to let them define us. Fortunately, according to our passage here in Titus 2, the grace of God does more than just tell us what we are to deny. Positively speaking, the grace of God teaches us, look at this in verse 12, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. To live sensibly is to have the wisdom of God in your mind and then to allow your life to be governed by that wisdom that is filling your mind. To live righteously is to live as God rightfully expects and calls you to live in His Word. To live godly is to live in a way that reflects a fear of God and a sober consciousness of Him and His greatness and His perfections and His holiness at all times. What we have here in this passage is a threefold description of how the Christian life should be lived. It's lived sensibly, righteously, and godly. And Paul is saying that the grace of God tutors us in how to live this way, in this present age. And it is only the grace of God that can produce this kind of godly living in us. The lightnings and the thunderings of Mount Sinai cannot produce this kind of godly living in us. Only the grace of God manifested in the person and work of Christ at his first coming can successfully school us in living this kind of godly lifestyle. So if you wanna benefit from this instruction as a Christian in the school of grace, obviously believe in Christ and then keep the grace of God before you at all times. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Learn to reason from the gospel to every area of your life. And let the grace of God daily instruct you in how to say no to sin and yes to godly living so that you can live sensibly and righteously and godly. Look at what he says, in the present age. Which means, guys, here's the good news. We don't have to sit around and wait for heaven to be godly. We can let the grace of God teach us even now to be godly And of all places, inside of this present evil age, God's grace manifested through Christ in his first coming is powerful enough to help you and me to be godly even in this present age. This present age is full of evil that surrounds us in every direction that we look. The whole world is going one way, giving into their ungodliness and worldly lust. But the grace of God teaches us to stand up to the enticements of the world and to move in the opposite direction and to walk a different path. But the gospel doesn't merely teach us how to live in a godly way in the present age. It also teaches us to train our eye on the future, the future appearing of Christ. This brings us to the third truth that Paul gives to us that is related to this gospel of grace that we're called to adorn with our lives. Number three, the grace of God teaches us to look for the coming appearing of Christ. The grace of God teaches us to look for the coming appearing of Christ. So the grace of God teaches us to live sensibly, righteously, godly in this present age, verse 12, And it also teaches us to live our lives—look at verse 13—looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. And so we very much live fully engaged in the present, as we have seen. But at the same time, we as Christians have our eyes trained on the future, the word that is translated looking here means to look forward to something with a heart of eager welcome. It's the way a groom looks for his bride who is about to turn a corner and come into view as she walks down the aisle toward him at their wedding. It's the way a child looks forward to Christmas morning. It's the way an athlete looks forward to game day. It's the way our dog Looks forward to going for a walk when he sees me grab the leash. This thing that the grace of God teaches us to look forward to is called, look at the text, the appearing. And this word appearing is the same word we saw earlier that we get our English word epiphany from. And the epiphany that we look forward to is the glory of our great God, and Savior, Christ Jesus. The grammar of this expression clearly indicates that Paul views Jesus as God. He refers to Jesus as our great God and Savior. And the way he words this expression makes for one of the strongest and clearest statements regarding the deity of Jesus Christ anywhere in the scripture Paul also refers to Jesus as Christ, which is the Greek word for Messiah. So based on Paul's wording here, Jesus is our God, our Savior, and our Messiah. He's our everything, and he will one day come in great glory. And we look forward to that day. And the grace of God teaches us to live in the here and now, in this present age, looking expectantly for the appearing of this one who is our Messiah, Savior, God. Though he is saving us now, his saving of us is not completed. Though we are blessed to have his spirit within us now, we are not content. Having the first fruits of the spirit, we groan within ourselves, looking forward to the day when Jesus raptures the church and glorifies all those who have believed in him, and then returns to the earth at the end of the tribulation period to establish his righteous reign upon the earth. We long for his glory to be manifested to the world. We long for Christ to defeat and to judge the wicked who rise up against him. We long for the day when the glory of the Lord will cover the whole earth in the meantime, other messiahs may present themselves to the world and people may follow them, but we don't. We're looking for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and him alone. Paul calls this day of Christ appearing the blessed hope. It's what we hope for with a confident hope it's what we want to happen and it's a blessed hope which means that it is a hope that will make us enviably happy when it comes to fruition and it's also a hope that makes us enviably happy even now in this present age because we know it's coming people may be panicking because the world around us seems to be falling apart But we smile inside as Christians because we know a secret. We know how history will end. We know that Jesus is going to win mightily in the end. And the outcome will be amazing for all of us who believe in him. It is our blessed hope. That said, the return of Christ is the last thing that the world wants now and will want then. the last person they will want to see is Jesus. I recently came across an organization called UndoJesus.org. UndoJesus.org. And part of their mission is to dismantle the influence of Jesus in our society. Their website features a man carrying a sign at a protest that says these words, If Jesus returns, kill him again. That's exactly what the Antichrist and his armies will try to do when Jesus does return. But Jesus will quickly prevail and judge the Antichrist and his armies and the beast and the false prophet, and he will establish his kingdom upon the earth. Christ's coming will be his enemy's worst nightmare. But it is our blessed hope. And it's the grace of God manifested in Christ's first appearing that teaches us to think this way and feel this way about his second coming. Coming into verse 14, Paul then turns our focus from Christ's glorious return to a look back on what Christ did on the cross in his first appearing. This brings us to the fourth and final truth that Paul gives to us related to the gospel of grace that we're called to adorn with our lives. Number four, the grace of God teaches us Christ's purposes in dying for us. The grace of God teaches us Christ's purposes in dying for us. Observe how Paul describes what Christ did and his purpose in doing so. Speaking of Christ, he says in verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. There's so much here. First of all, notice that we're told here that Christ gave himself. His life was not taken from him. He was not arrested against his will. He did not die against his will. He gave himself. And Paul says, He gave himself for whom? For us. In other words, Jesus gave himself up in death on the cross for us. He did not have to die. For himself, because he never sinned. He gave himself up for us. No one has ever loved us like this. And he gave himself up in this way, Paul says, in order to redeem us. In other words, to deliver us through the paying of a price. He gave himself for us to redeem us through the paying of a price, and that price was his life. Bishop John Shelby Spong is a man who claims to be a Christian and a pastor, but he denies the miracles of the Bible. He denies just about every basic tenet of the gospel that the Bible declares. At a lecture that he delivered back In 2010, he said, and I quote, We don't need a Savior. If Jesus died for your sins, you are one wretched human being, and I don't think that's good news, unquote. He could not be more wrong. We do need a Savior. And the message that Jesus died to redeem us is actually not offensive to those who are humble. It's good news to those who are humble. And this is undeniably what is being taught in passages like Titus chapter 2, verse 14. Paul specifically says here that Jesus died to deliver us from every lawless deed. Every one of them. In other words, he gave himself up in debt to deliver us from the guilt of every prior lawless deed that we have ever done. And also to deliver us from the lawless deeds, many of which we will never now commit because Christ has freed us and redeemed us. This means that if we believe in Christ, whenever our conscience condemns us for past sins, We can look to the cross and remind ourselves that Christ died to redeem us from the guilt of those past lawless deeds. But it also means that when we're tempted to engage in a lawless deed, we can in that moment look to the cross and remind ourselves that Jesus died to liberate us from the power of that lawless deed which means that we don't have to commit such sins anymore because Christ gave himself to free us from sin's power. It doesn't matter how long we were formerly bound to those particular sins or how many generations in our family history those sins go back to. Christ died to release us from the stranglehold of such sins in our lives. But Christ did not just simply die in order to redeem us from sin. According to verse 14, he gave himself over in death in order to, look what the text says, to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Christ died to render us cleansed from the defilement of sin, not as an end in itself, but in order that we might, having been cleansed, be a people for his own possession. He cleansed us so that he could bring us into relationship with himself so that we as a people might enjoy close relationship with him and so that he might enjoy close relationship with us. Christ died to bring us into the enjoyment of an eternal love relationship with him as his own unique and specially chosen people. And notice what the text says here. I love this. Christ died to purify for himself a people. Not to purify for himself many peoples, but a people. Not many peoples, but one people. Just as the Israelites were a people, so we are saved by Christ to be a single people who now enjoy oneness with each other in Christ as the single people of God. I think about what Corey shared earlier in their greeting, the church that they're a part of in Iraq has 14 nationalities represented in that one church, and yet they are one. They're not 14, they're one in Christ, united through the shed blood of Jesus. And this is such an important truth for us to keep in mind in these days of division that rumble through our society. Even here at Cornerstone, some of us are Asian and some are black and some are Hispanic and some of us are Caucasian. Some of us have histories that would tend to make us divided from others whose skin color is different But there is one thing about each of us as believers in Jesus that transcends all of those distinctions. And that is Jesus. Jesus Christ. And the knowledge that he died to purify for himself a single people for his own possession. And that's what unites us and makes us one. Amen? About a month ago, I was at AutoZone, and I was wearing a T-shirt that said, No Jesus, No Peace, N-O, No Jesus, No Peace. And it also said, No Jesus, K-N-O-W, No Peace. And when I was at the checkout counter buying my items An African-American man who was about 15 feet away from me yelled out and said, Hey, you. And I turned and looked at him. And he was looking at my shirt and he said, I love your shirt. And I said, thank you. And he pointed to the message on my shirt and in a really loud voice, loud enough for just about everyone in the store to hear. He said, that's what we need right now. We need Jesus. Not all of this other nonsense, he said as he waved his hands. We need Jesus, he said, and preached a little sermon there for the benefit of all of us who could hear him. I had never met this man before in my life, but in that moment, standing 15 away from each other in an auto parts store, our hearts were united in total agreement About Jesus. With all the division that was plaguing our society at that time, some people might have thought that he and I would be divided by color, but we weren't divided at all. We were united in Jesus. Because Jesus died to purify for himself a people, a single people for his own possession. According to Titus 2.14, Christ died to redeem us from every lawless deed. He died to purify for himself a people for his own possession, and he died to purify for himself a people, look at the text, who are zealous for good deeds. This zeal is born out of a love for Christ that is nourished by his love for us. This zeal is birthed out of the joy of being redeemed and cleansed by Christ through his shed blood at the cross. This zeal for good deeds is nourished in the context of being Christ's own, prized possession, loved and cared for by him. This zeal for good deeds that we as believers have is nourished by a sense that we finally belong somewhere in this world. And that is with him among the special people who are his. These expressions of the grace of God toward us through Christ do not make us complacent, but actually leave us with a burning zeal to do good to others as Christ has done to us. We don't just do good deeds because we have to. Or begrudgingly, we do good deeds with zeal. We do them eagerly because Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us from sin and to make us a special people for his own possession. And then these deeds that we do with eagerness, guys, then serve as adornment for the gospel that we believe and declare to other people. In other words, the good deeds that we do that adorn the gospel are deeds, guys, that are birthed from the gospel in the first place. Jesus Christ, through the instrumentality of the gospel, produces in us the very deeds that then serve as adornment for the gospel that we are called to adorn the gospel with in verse 10. Think about what adorning oneself usually entails. A person might want to look attractive. So they go to a store and purchase cosmetics and then come home and apply those cosmetics to their face in order to look more attractive. They might go to a store and buy some jewels and then adorn themselves with those jewels. They might go to a store and purchase some nice clothes And then put those clothes on and adorn their body in a way that makes them look more attractive. But the gospel of Jesus Christ is not like this. Jesus Christ doesn't have to go get the adornment to adorn his gospel with. He produces his own adornment. The gospel of Jesus Christ produces its own adornment producing its own jewels in the lives of the saints. And the very jewels that the gospel produces then serve as adornment, which then begins to show the world what a beautiful and powerful thing the gospel of Jesus Christ really is. And we all get to participate in that, doing good deeds produced by the gospel that adorn the gospel. Paul wants Titus to declare this to the people of God. Notice how he ends the chapter. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you, he says. And these things Paul is referring to are the gospel truths that he's just declared. And it also includes the instructions for everyone in the church as to how they are to live their lives and to adorn this gospel. Titus is to speak everything that Paul has said In chapter 2, and to do any exhorting and reproving necessary with the full authority of Christ behind him. And he is to let no one disregard him as he declares the gospel and the lifestyle that is to adorn it. As we close this evening, let me take just a few minutes to ponder three things with you. First of all, I love how Paul takes the time in this chapter to preach the gospel to Titus, another pastor in this text, and how he wants Titus to make sure that he's speaking and declaring gospel truth to his congregation as motivation for righteous living. We learn from Paul's example that, that we need to make sure that our actions are motivated by the gospel that we keep the gospel front and center in our focus at all times and then allow Christ through the gospel to produce in us the character and the good deeds that will then serve to adorn the gospel and show the world what an amazing and beautiful thing the gospel really is. Secondly, a passage like we've looked at tonight also helps us because, as I said at the outset of the message, it shows us our place. Our role in God's economy is not to be the gospel, but simply to adorn the gospel. It's not up to us to be the hero because Christ is already the hero of history and of our life story. It's not up to us to be the Messiah of the world or of our city or country. Christ is already assume that role. And now it's just simply our job to let the gospel of Jesus Christ change our own lives and then to let our own lives adorn the gospel of Christ so that people will look to him and be impressed by him and see the salvation that comes only through him. And finally, don't underestimate, guys, how powerfully you can adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ by following the seemingly mundane guidelines that Paul has given us here in Titus 2. In his book entitled Ordinary, Michael Horton quotes from a woman named Tish Harrison Warren, who in her college years wanted to live a radical life for Christ. She speaks of her college years and she says, and I quote, we were challenged to impact and serve the world in radical ways, but we never learned how to be an average person living an average life in a beautiful way. Unquote. She quotes from a sign that she saw once that read Everyone wants a revolution, but no one wants to do the dishes. And as a woman who is now a young mother, she then says, and I quote, my life is really rich in dirty dishes and dirty diapers these days and really short on revolution. But then she says this, I've come to the point where I'm not sure anymore just what God counts as radical. And I suspect that for me, Getting up and doing the dishes when I'm short on sleep and patience is far more costly and necessitates more of a revolution in my heart than some of the more outwardly risky ways I've lived in the past. And so this is what I need now, the courage to face an ordinary day, An afternoon with a colicky baby where I'm probably going to snap at my two-year-old and get annoyed with my noisy neighbor without despair. I need the bravery it takes to believe that a small life is still a meaningful life. I need the grace to know that even when I've done nothing that is powerful or bold or even interesting, that the Lord notices me and is fond of me and that that Is enough. Are these the words of a woman who has settled? Or are these the words of a woman who is entering into the real mystery of godliness? If you think what this young mother is saying is a cop out, let me close by reading from another woman. This one is overseas. Doing missionary work. Steve and Lisa Reisman are missionaries that we as a church support who have crossed the seas and gone to Togo, West Africa to do great things for Christ there. Steve is a doctor who is using his gifts to minister physical healing to others in the name of Jesus. And he and Lisa are using every opportunity to share the gospel with those that they minister to many would look at what they're doing as radical. But in a letter from them last October, Lisa wrote these words, and many of you received this same letter. She said, and I quote, "'To be honest, it's sometimes hard to write these letters "'because, well, most of the time, "'our life feels pretty ordinary.'" We want to have a fantastic story to share. And sometimes we even selfishly want to be the hero of it. But the only hero I actually know is Jesus. And perhaps, after all, that is enough, isn't it? Sometimes we look and see incredible things that he is doing. And sometimes we look around and just see ordinary, normal life and ministry. But we can have rock-solid confidence that he is building his kingdom, and it will be unshakable in between the wow moments we just live by faith in the day today. To Steve and Lisa Reisman, Jesus would say, what you do in between those wow moments Adorns the gospel as much as anything you ever do during the wow moments. And Jesus would say the same thing to you, to all of us tonight who know him. Don't underestimate the ways you adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ on your most ordinary days of serving him and showing his love to others in the most mundane and practical of ways. We don't have to be heroes, guys. Jesus is already that. Our job is to let him be our hero and let him beautify our lives and transform the way we live from day to day and then to be content to merely adorn the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that points people always to him. Amen. Let's pray and ask God to help us to do just that. Lord God, we thank you for this precious gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. I pray that if there's any here tonight who have never come to the foot of the cross and seen their need for the salvation that only you can provide through Christ and seen their bankruptcy, Lord, and looked at Jesus and said that This one is the savior for me. I pray, Lord, that you would touch their hearts and draw them to yourself and save them tonight. And for all of us who know you. Lord, our our prayer is that you would help us to. To live lives that are at the foot of the same cross. That we would allow ourselves to be beautified by Jesus Christ. And that beauty would be exhibited in our character and in our attitudes and in the deeds that we perform. And that those attitudes and our character and the things we do would then serve to adorn the precious gospel of Christ. So that others might See its beauty and power and attractiveness and be drawn to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Living in the present age, Lord, we live between two wow moments, the wow moment of your first appearing and the wow moment of your second appearing. Help us in between those two wow moments to be faithful to adorn the gospel, and that others might be saved through Christ through our ministry and our example. Lord, we thank you for being faithful to us as a church that we could meet on a night like this to sing. And I know, Lord, we had questions about whether or not Uh, The guidelines that were given to us by our state officials would allow us to do this, and we're just so thankful for the clear guidance that we have received from our state officials. We pray, just as we close our service tonight, Lord, for our president and his administration and all those who serve in Congress and on the benches of the courts of our land. We pray for our governor, for those who work along with him and for our county officials. All of them, Lord, are under a heavy burden of making decisions that are in the best interest of. Of the people that they are called to serve, and we thank you, Lord, for their service and ask that you would lavish your wisdom upon them, and if there is any evil intention. In anyone's heart, Lord, we pray that you would thwart those intentions and always bring about good. But we're thankful, Lord, for those who serve us in positions of government leadership. And we pray for your blessing and your wisdom upon them. And then help us, Lord, as citizens to honor one another, to honor all men. To honor you, to honor those who are in authority over us, and to seek to adorn your gospel in every respect. And we ask all of these things in the name of Jesus, and all God's people said.